It is September the 9th, 2021, and you're watching Curiously Polar. I keep saying you're watching, but I think most most people are actually <laughs> listening to this. So uh, welcome to the listeners and to the watchers. Uh, I'm Chris, and there's Henry and uh, Mario. Hello. Mario. Mario, yes, how are you? I'm doing fine up here in Tromso with a nice drizzly... <laughs> 9th of September. Thing. We just we just <laughs> realized that okay here uh, here in uh, northern Germany we are going to have like 26, 27, 28 degrees today. It's the 9th of September. Um, Henry, you're not doing much different where you are. No, no, pretty much the same temperatures. And what's the temperature up in the Arctic? Well, right now in Tromsø is seven degrees, Yay. and uh, <laughs> it's in between shower rain showers. It's been like this since. Uh, Last year, I don't know, since I remember. <laughs> well, anyway, so coming from coming to you from at least two different climate zones, and uh, that is as it should be. So let us kick off. Wait, actually, we have a question. We have a question from a listener um, who listened to the last episode where we talked about uh, underwater drones and things, and uh, he asks... Um, if anyone has ever done uh, searches on the seafloor for 18th and 19th uh, century whaling ships around Spitsbergen, ships that were there, because he, his, his um, ancestors used to be fishing up there and uh, some didn't return. So do we know if there is any information on those? Are there, is it even feasible that something is still up there? Oh, certainly. Certainly. I mean, if, well, if, uh, if you look at Sweden, the Vasa is a good example for a wooden ship that has uh, stayed underwater for quite a while and then been brought up again. How about Spitsbergen? Well, the, uh, the conditions for preservation of wood underwater are quite good because of the, uh, because of the, uh, like the low temperatures. There is a problem, of course, of the ice uh, breaking everything in its wake uh, with the ice foot, like the uh, the uh, the bottom of the uh, of the sea ice moving mm -hmm. about and and crunching everything down to maybe I don't know five ten meters depth. So uh, shallow uh, shallow wrecks are probably destroyed. But uh, there is, um, I mean, there is a, a wealth of uh, of wrecks probably up, especially in the northwest. Oswald and uh, and I think that the uh, I do not know directly of any wrecks because these are usually kept quite uh, secret by the <laughs> you only if you are a, a marine archaeologist you get to know where they are and if they have not been taken up but I think that uh, I remember at the museum in Barentsburg they have uh, a few pomor uh, remainders like uh, uh, things like porcelain uh, pipes and other things that were from uh, wrecks of pomor origin so the russian hunters they were predating the let's say the more uh, uh, western european hunters there and uh, i think that uh, the uh, susan bar the uh, um, state uh, antiquary of uh, Norway has uh, has published a book about something like that uh, for for Svalbard, but uh, we don't have it in the. But we will we'll check we'll check for okay. But there, there's there's not there's not not to your knowledge uh, some sort of public catalog or something about those. To my knowledge, there is no public catalog, yeah. and it would be quite difficult. Just uh, as an example, the uh, the first uh, steam whaler uh, by uh, uh, Sven Foyn, the, uh, the 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 whaling ship that has uh, started it all for the industrial whaling, uh, called the Spessenfide. Uh, uh, it was uh, Spes et Fide in in Latin, like uh, hope and faith. Mm -hmm. It was the the first ship uh, that was equipped with the um, with the steam turbines and uh, that had a uh, exploding grenade harpoon gun on the front. Okay. Like this is the first modern whaling ship. It's just out here of Stromso. It's in a very 
very secret position, but it's just a, a few hundred meters on the southwest so of the se- island. <laughs> secret to, to avoid uh, treasure hunters. Pillage. To go out yeah, there, treasure yes. hunters. Yeah. Yes, okay. Exactly. I understand. Mm. I understand. That's the kind of tourism that you don't really need. No, but uh, but there are more and more uh, more and more underwater drones. Now we talked about this uh, penguin-like uh, uh, yeah. drone that is autonomous. Uh, a lot uh, is used uh, in one of the projects that we mentioned last week about the uh, plankton or the ice algae. They are using also for sampling a tether drone uh, made by Blue Eye Technology up here in in Norway, and a lot of the. Uh, of the new expedition ships or old expedition ships are being equipped with uh, these tethered drones that are more affordable. I mean, still, we're talking about the cost of a, of a small car, at least in Germany, <laughs> not in Norway. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> yes, oh, we're talking about uh, equipment that might cost uh, around seven, eight thousand euros. So yeah. it's not uh, it's not really something that uh, that is available to just about anybody, but. Uh, Right, but uh, they they are the technology is becoming more and more available. And the good thing with that technology, to to add on that, because we actually um, have that on board in our article as well, um, particularly from from um, that manufacturer, um, is really it serves more more than just one purpose, right? Um, you get a nice footage for marketing purposes. You 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 grant the the guests and uh, a view, which very very few people actually. Oh, and there he froze. Oh, he froze. Yeah. Oh yes, I froze. Oh, yeah, now, now, now you're, you're back. back. <laughs> now you're back. Okay. Yeah, I just got the information network uh, connection lost. Mm, let's let's keep trying anyway. Um, okay. All right. Yeah. So good. On today's episode, we want to talk about books, our favorite books about the Arctic and the Antarctic. Um, and we figured out, uh, maybe, Henry, could you could you hold up, or both of you, could you hold up your stack of books that you have put next to the uh, oh, camera? Wait a second. Just, just to show for all the listeners out there, the viewers out there. So, Henry, this is the biggest stack of books. And, oh, no, uh, but... I- I I can't lift all of them because they are they are on the sides on both sides and so don't, don't <laughs> dear listeners don't worry we have um, I've made an executive decision that we have three <laughs> books each for this episode um, so both Henry and Mario will show their favorite books three of them but because that is definitely not enough we are going to make this at least a two part episode so there will be uh, another follow up and. Uh, maybe you can share. I think it's a rec- it's gonna get, get a, a, a gonna become a recurring theme probably over the next years. <laughs> probably. <laughs> so so if any of you uh, listening uh, have your favorite books about the Arctic, the Antarctic, um, let us know. Uh, YouTube YouTube comments is a good place to put that. Um, but before we dig into the books, let's look at the Arctic newsreel. We still don't have a jingle for it, but it's, uh, we really have to work. Uh, polar on polar newsreel. Yeah. Not, um, not just Arctic. That's true. Um, let us talk about polar bears, rockets, expeditions, mm-hmm. um, penguins, krill, and the Russians. Mario, the take, Russians. It, take it away. <laughs> oh my gosh. Take it away. <laughs> yes, the first thing that uh, came up uh, is, a, is a new article um, that has appeared in the journal called Arctic. It's open source and you'll have the link. And it's about uh, the use of tools uh, by polar bears for procuring food. Now, um, the authors here are Jan Sterling, and he is a, uh, like a, the most uh, well-known uh, polar bear scientist. But then you have uh, two other, at least for me, uh, colleagues, Christine Lader, who is working uh, from the US, uh, from uh, the, um, Seattle, and uh, Eric Bourne, who was my PhD supervisor, he is uh, now retired, but he's, uh, he was and he's still associated with the Greenland Institute of Natural Resources. And they are all of them very serious uh, uh, scientists. Now, the background is that there are stories of polar bears hurling rocks down at walruses and uh, and other 
uh, species that they might be hunting, like seals or something. So what? And and these three uh, colleagues they have been looking at uh, the anecdotal uh, anecdotal uh, information about about these stories, and they have been actually trying to compile this. And uh, and uh, they uh, found out that uh, it might actually have happen for real it's not just something that the inuit guides have told their uh the explorers just to, to make to have a laugh um at their on their behalf uh behind their back and and uh, it is uh, it is possible and uh, of course the conformation of the coast must be important i mean polar bears do not just take rocks up and, and lift them <laughs> and cr- crack the head of a seal but if they come in situations like uh, in uh, in in some places uh, where you have a, a cliff and the, there are walruses down at the beach and the polar bear comes up from the top they might be be able to roll down boulders and pieces of ice and something and just have this picture in my mind scared. of a polar bear bowling like with a, like a bowling alley with walrus <laughs> exactly down there. And I think I think that was the problem why it initially um, wasn't taken seriously because the um, the accounts um, have been made already 1800 by um, right. by by Inuit by local Inuit living in the area right and it is one of many examples that uh, Inuit accounts have not been taken seriously um, yeah. in, in in scientific research or historic accounts right. That is interesting because the the Inuit are very close to this, so you should take them even more seriously. Yeah, but just remember the the Franklin expedition. Um, There there have been Inuit accounts long, long time back, actually very um, few years after the disappearance of Franklin, where uh, there were very clear Inuit accounts where the ship has sunk, and they they have been largely ignored, and eventually they found the uh, ship exactly at that exactly position. Exactly there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. And uh, and you have to understand also that uh, polar bears, especially for walruses, I mean, it's well known, and maybe some of the listeners and you have uh, seen, uh, certainly have seen the, the footage of the polar bear scaring away the walrus herd, uh, that is including also calves, so young walruses. And... Uh, and the the stampeding walrus group that is going to the water because they have been scared by the polar bear is actually trampling down the young that are in the herd, in the middle of the herd. And so the polar bears can pluck them out more easily, either because they are stunned or they are left alone or they are or they are dead. And uh, so, uh, tool, so use, tool use in the animal kingdom is not unusual. We have uh, plenty no, exactly. of occurrences, crows, for example, and other animals do that. Yeah, so, but so I think it's it's it's, it's more limited nice. in an, in an area like the Arctic, uh, particularly the polar bear, which is largely connected to to the sea ice. To get tools there, it's very hard to imagine um, having uh, some tools there. And what scientists figured out now um, in in that research is that they not only use rocks on the coastline, but also ice chunks to uh, use the tools to either roll or throw it um, at. at uh, walruses and the problem with human imagination is we always try to connect it to uh, human behavior right um, yeah. picking it up and throwing um feels like gripping it with a with a hand and just throw it um and target it to something um if we describe it like that it might look different with a bear but it nonetheless means that the bear picked up the uh, chunk of ice to to use it as a tool to crack a, uh, exactly. a skull all right let's move on exactly. to space how about that yeah, and uh, and this is about uh, this is from the Barents Observer. They were actually reporting of uh, a, a notice by the uh, Russian authorities that uh, there might be uh, pieces of the uh, cowling uh, of a Soyuz rocket that are going to be falling tonight, right in the area that's between uh, the south of Spitsbergen, Bear Island, and Hopen. Uh, I'm particularly attentive to this because uh, Best Explorer is actually <laughs> a few miles northwest of uh, Bjornoya or That's Bear Island right now. That's the ship of your, of your <laughs> dad. Yes, my father is up there. So I was, uh, I just hmm. uh, came up on this and uh, it uh, it actually, uh, it's actually quite, uh, quite interesting because uh, it's an area, as you see in the picture now on the screen, that is full of uh, fishing. Uh, now, if you take a space bag and the triangle on the top, uh, on the center of top of the center of the of the picture, and then Bear Island is exactly in the middle, 
and uh, and then Hopen is up on the uh, on the right, uh, a little bit on the right. So it's it's a place where there is a large number of ships at the moment. Yeah. It's a very productive uh, marine area there. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a fishing fishing area, and so mostly they are. It it is it is still quite unlikely that a ship gets hit. But uh, just imagine what a glorious way to go this would be. I mean, just <laughs> yes. what a story. It's about to be really unlucky. Piece of a rocket. I'm not sure yeah. if that's so glorious. Exactly. But it raises so. again um, the, the, the question how we organize our space uh, encounters. Uh, so many um, leftovers just dumped in the ocean, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and not only not not everything actually burns on the no, re-entry, yeah. so it is uh, it is interesting that there are there are quite a lot of wrecks there. Probably also uh, the uh, wreck of the uh, Latham aircraft that uh, where Amundsen disappeared, uh, but uh, but there are also lots of different wrecks. It's uh, it's quite a populated area, <laughs> which which takes yeah. us nicely into the next uh, newsreel topic. <laughs> what a segue! We stay with the Barnes Observer. Apparently, exactly. there is stuff uh, underwater that has been found and uh, yeah, it's should not be so there. nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, and this is a report from a cruise. And actually, I've heard this also from a colleague uh, the other day uh, in uh, like work-related uh, thing is that this uh, cruise actually was looking for different things, but among others, uh, radioactive uh, waste. Uh, because uh, in the uh, in the early days of the Cold War, uh, there had been an, an accident, and uh, uh, oh, there have been several accidents, but this one here is one of the most famous with a with a submarine, and uh, the reactors have been put in a container and then dumped in the uh, southwest of uh, the uh, of the Novaya Zemlya island, and uh, and they have been kind of forgotten. And uh, this cruise now has located the container with the uh, broken reactors, nuclear reactors, and they are thinking about ways of uh, uh, taking it up, uh, taking up this container and uh, and disposing of it in a in a more, let's say, environmentally friendly way. If we can say that about nuclear waste. <laughs> wow! And that's also something that has been neglected a lot um, in, in the past, because. <laughs> Um, obviously, in, uh, during the the Cold War times, um, was big secrecy between um, the blocks to to hide uh, certain accidents. But this one was uh, one of those which couldn't really um, be hidden. Um, mm. However, that b- because there was no big intention to actually uh, do something about that, that just went really uh, dormant uh, as a topic. Now, leading into a fact, and you have it just on the screen right now, that. Um, at the moment, there is thought to be 17,000 radioactive objects <laughs> in, in the oceans. And most of them are actually uh, really aggregating in the Kara Sea, where a lot of the uh, nuclear fleet um, yeah, left the leftovers. Like, for example, as the article also sta- uh, states, the old reactors yeah. of the icebreaker Lenin, which was <laughs> a very famous icebreaker as yes. well. So it's, yeah. it's quite it's- a topic. It's quite a topic, and I find that it's uh, reassuring or it's uh, refreshing to hear that the uh, Russian authorities are actually taking this very seriously, and I think you know, cleaning up of uh, all of these sites or at least part of these sites. It's a good development, and I really commend uh, the Russian authorities for this and the Russian scientists for coming up uh, with, the, with these proposals for these cruises. So you have cruises that are doing other oceanographic surveys, but they also take up these signals and. Uh, and they but I'm are sure publishing. Uh, Russia, Russia having the chair of the Arctic Council at the moment is uh, quite supportive in that uh, regard. Exactly, so. <laughs> exactly, and it's, it's quite that. nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, from nuclear waste, let's talk about penguins <laughs> that have uh, defects. I think that's probably the right well, it's, term. It's maybe exaggerating saying defects, but they are kind of different penguins. <laughs> well, okay. So, so, so this is titled so, as penguin misfits. What are those? Yes, exactly. exactly. And, uh, and this is, uh, this is because penguins, like all animals have a difference of coloration. But when you see a group of penguins, uh, uh, you see them all in their tuxedo uniform and, uh, they are kind of uh, very much alike. You wouldn't be able to tell the one for the other. Uh, but they can have uh, genetically some differences. And, 
And then, I mean, they do have genetical differences and some of them have different colorations. So as you see here, you have a few examples of what they call them misfits in this article. I love and the nicknames they gave them. Yes, exactly. That's okay. <laughs> let, let me read them. There's Batman, there's like Cream the Fresh, there's Ninja, there's Crop Top, there's Platinum, and there's the White Russian that we are again <laughs> yes. with the Russians. <laughs> the Russians there. And here, I think that we're only looking at the uh, Adelie penguins. But uh, I mean, I've seen I've seen uh, King Penguins, uh, Melanistic yes. King Penguins, and uh, and they are. Uh, I mean, genetically, they are different. They can be different gradations of uh, black or white or beige or something, leucistic if they are whitish, melanistic if they are blackish. And the main idea here is that uh, the penguins that are different, the idea, the preconceived idea or like the, uh, the theory is that they would have uh, lower reproductive success. And the interesting part about this article is that actually it doesn't look like they can detect the differences in reproductive success for these penguins. So being different doesn't mean that you are going to be uh, keeping your genes for yourself. So Aka not reproducing. In this case, they can reproduce and they did reproduce uh, like almost uh, I, like any any other penguin. I would expect yeah. them to be more popular because they are special, you know, because they look different. Well, one, one you don't thing, want to be special. <laughs> one thing, yeah, exactly. One thing is being special because uh, a potential mate might see you and prefer you rather than your friend on the side there. Uh, but the other thing is being visible to predators or ah. being like more visible to, yeah. You, sti or you stick out from the crowd. Or to prey. And, yeah. Yeah, there, there's there's or a to reason prey. for the color patterns uh, that evolved with penguins. And uh, you find that pattern with almost all marine mammals um, in, in the sea. And fish. Um, yeah, and and fish as well. Uh, Black on uh, like dark on the side on the back and uh, and clear on the on the belly, right? Yeah. But uh, the other thing that could be interesting to think about is that actually, if you have a different coloration, that is a kind of disadvantageous because the prey probably sees you or the predator can see you. You might actually, if you survive and you get to reproductive age you might actually be much stronger and much more fit than the other because you have to fight worse odds. So that that is also one way of looking at it. But All right. good, and I'm happy for the different penguins. Good, very good. Um, Me too. Okay, I can't find a good segue. Let's talk about krill <laughs> fishing. And uh, for this, no, you've, you've given us an yeah. article from The Guardian. Yeah, the the segue here is that of course uh, penguins, like uh, many of the animals <laughs> down in the Antarctic, they feed on krill, ah. and uh, krill is an extremely ex important resource. It's an, it's a the key player in the ecosystem down there, like yeah. from birds to mammals to fish, and everybody eats krill or some derivative of the krill. And krill has been used. Uh, there have been fishing for krill for producing animal feed, mainly for fish farms. Uh, krill is uh, not uh, particularly uh, palatable uh, if taken from down there, uh, especially because of the uh, fluoride in the shells or in the exoskeleton that is kind of poisonous for us. And uh, penguins have a way of dealing with it by regurgitating the stomach lining when mm, it gets too, uh, too um, how do you call it, <laughs> too uh, saturated with fluoride, so so there are there are ways of dealing with this. Uh, whales have a special uh, system in their in their kidneys to get rid of all this excess fluoride, and uh, but uh, the main attention now is for uh, how do you call it um, health uh, products like omega three pr products. Fish, and, uh, fish oil capsules kind of thing. Fish oil yeah. capsules, exactly. And of course, if you can say this is omega-3 oils that is coming from the pure waters of the Antarctic, then you have already a marketing advantage. Or uh, you can say that the CAMELAR, uh, the uh, organization that is uh, dealing with uh, the regulation of uh, fishing and the, and the marine resources in the in the, around the Antarctica, they if they say it's okay to uh, to fish krill, then you have also a, a blue stamp on your on your applications for for doing this. Mm -hmm. And uh, it looks like there is 
uh, uh, more and more interest and there are more and more ships going down there. And I am not really sure that uh, this is a good idea. Now, the article from The Guardian here is uh, written uh, by an organization that is uh, openly opposed to uh, creel fishing. So we have to take it as a, with, a, with a grain of salt. But it is something that you're saying like, hey, now maybe, just maybe, do we really need to go down there <laughs> and take also the krill and, uh, and do a lot of krill fishing? Yeah, how, is it how, really going to be sustainable or not? How, how dangerous that, is that for the environment? Because you said krill is the basis for everything uh, down there. And uh, that means, yeah, we, we, by, by taking it out of the water... Um, that means you're not leaving, potentially not leaving enough for the for the other life there. Well, the um, the uh, there is a lot of krill, and uh, now I don't have the numbers from Camilar, but there is a lot of krill, and the fishing fleet for krill is minute compared to the uh, the, the influence of of krill fishing is like this. Right. But you know, it's also difficult to imagine how this will develop. And we have been able to take down the uh, the populations of a lot of uh, fish species and uh, shrimps and crustaceans. So we have the potential of also being very detrimental to uh, to krill if we are not careful. And it right. would be really good to be uh, to be careful. Also, in this case here, we are on our on a good way. We are having a. Um, we are having a, a good control over the uh, activities around Antarctica. We are having an increase, a very nice increase in the uh, population of whales. The penguins are also doing quite okay. Um, most of the population of penguins are doing quite okay. So we are on the right track. But this is due to the reduced uh, extraction of resources from the ecosystem. Right. So it would be good to keep on like that, and it also would be good if uh, Henry came back. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, Henry has lo we have lost Henry's camera, but I think he's tr he's scrambling to get another battery in the camera. If that doesn't work, just use the laptop camera. Ah, <laughs> it's not only the camera; it's also for some reason the connection. Yeah, you updated your computer earlier think, today. That's a problem. Not, not voluntarily. It just happened overnight and surprised me this morning. I actually, my theory is that he wanted to let me know that I should stop talking about Krill. <laughs> no, actually, actually, I wanted to, to participate in that because it's, it's really an important topic. And it is the source of the abundance of, of marine wildlife in Antarctica. So for, for us, for people going down there to showcase the place, that's a really essential part uh, for the ecosystem down in Antarctica. It's a very essential part. And if the krill fishery um, just goes up as it does right now by 15 to 20% each year, then at some point the krill um, stock will just plummet into, uh, into regions where it can't support the amount of um, wildlife down there anymore. Yeah, a and cascade will, effect, yeah. Yes, and that will have a big impact on the global ocean um, behavior, on the uh, global ocean patterns. Because what we try to, uh, or what we tend to forget is the bigger impacts. It's not that we just put one piece out of the puzzle and the rest of the puzzle stays the same. There have been many studies of what kind of impact penguins have um, to the marine wildlife, what kind of uh, impact um, whales have on marine wildlife, how much the, the oceans actually changed after the uh, height of whaling in the Southern Ocean. So there, yeah. there's, a, there's a big impact on that. So it's not just the tiny little krill that disappears because it doesn't really affect us. It's um, fish oil and we can just um, yeah take another source, right? It's a, it's a bigger yeah. picture. And it's also, it's also the, uh, that uh, we do the removals in a totally different way than whales yes. and penguins and uh, albatrosses and petrels and all this. We are taking the resource and we are moving it away to another part of the planet. While a whale, a penguin, a petrel would eat the krill and then naturally more or less in situ remineralize <laughs> or yes. give back to the... Uh, to the to the environment, uh, the mineral salts, the uh, the ions, and and everything that's in uh, in the feces, and that is actually promoting a fertilization of the environment. 
Exactly. While we are just moving it away. Plus that there is a risk of accidents, risk of uh, uh, mishaps, and uh, and you know, like an oil spill is from a wreck is uh, not uh, it's not a nice thing to do. So and the krill is actually cooked on board in order to preserve it, or like part of the product is right. treated on board, so that there is actually just a little more of an activity. And a little more complex activity than just uh, just taking it out from the ocean. So the problem yeah. with con conservation um, bodies is that saving the whale was kind of a cute thing because uh, whales are looking very nice and they're behaving very nice. But saving krill is a much more difficult topic because it doesn't a hard have sell. such a yes. nice icon um, yeah. as a and, as a as a picture, right? Yeah, and saving the whales also came at a moment in time of the yes. economy where whale oil was actually coming out of the picture anyways. So it's uh, it didn't it didn't disturb too much the global industry because there were other products that could be taken over. Like right. here We are actually opening a new market. We are opening uh, new things, and uh, there is no real alternative. So there and is no natural economical. Exactly the same like the whalers and sealers did just 100 years ago. It's exactly. not much different, yeah. Um, no. Staying with the Russian theme, we had rocket parts hitting <laughs> the Barents Sea. We had nuclear waste in the Barents Sea. Um, there's uh, apparently a bit of a bit of a freak accident that happened. What is that all about? Yeah, that was a very interesting um, news report. And it's that's sad. <laughs> a very sad one. It includes actually um, the Minister for Russian Emergency Situations, um, Evgeny uh, Zinichev. And he participated on a drill in the Arctic, including 6,000 um, people uh, who, who've been involved there. And apparently he died during those drills by uh, the attempt to rescue a very famous uh, award-winning director who was researching for an upcoming documentary um, together with him. And um, Alexander Melnik, the director, just fell into the water and without really thinking, uh, Zinichev just jumped in and tried to, to rescue him and died there um, together with Melnik. So actually both people died um, in that incident. But, was, it was a rock, like he was hitting a rock, wasn't he? Yes. Like as he as he dove in the water. That's yeah. really oh my gosh, yes. So that that was a that seems a real yeah. accident, no foul play or anything. Um, no, that's actually no. <laughs> a real accident. Um, I think the the reason why it um, took such a high wave in, in, in media coverage is really it's a minister. It's a very high uh, official, and he was very close to um, Vladimir Putin. Um, they have been working together very long. Zinichev used to be bodyguard of, um, of of Putin, and that yeah triggered Putin to actually release uh, a personal uh, press release um, on on this incident. Yeah. All yeah, right. Sad, uh, sad story. So, Accidents happen. Yeah. Indeed. With that, let us get on to the main topic. With this is already going on for ever. But um, no, the main topic, the books. <laughs> see, see why I limited this to three books each? There we go. Um, <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> and, it's, and it's the two of you bringing three books each because I only bring oh. one book each and it's not even necessarily that Arctic. Okay, you Antarctic. start then. I, I start, I start with, because um, I do not have a big collection about Arctic, Antarctic books. All I know about it, um, I learned from online and from YouTube. So um, this is, this is my, my classroom here, uh, so to speak. Um, but I remember from my childhood, I remember a book that had some of the themes in it, and that might have actually planted a bit of a, a seed in me when it comes to the cold climates. Um, and it's a story by uh, Raymond Briggs. It's a children's book called The Snowman. And uh, it's uh, well known to all the listeners from the UK. Um, it was in the 80s made into... Uh, an animated uh, film. It's like 27 minutes long. You can watch it on YouTube. Um, and uh, it has all the themes in it that uh, that are there. There's um, there's polar bears, there's Norway, there's snow, there's ice, there's icebergs, there's uh, polar lights, lots of them, very colorful, uh, <laughs> like blue, red, green, orange, everything. Everything. Um, <laughs> And uh, and there's even Santa Claus, so and penguins, which kind of don't work with the North Pole, but 
That's artistic artistic license. <laughs> it's, it's a traveling snowman. It's a license. It's a license. It's, yeah. it's artistic license. But it is really. Uh, I I I only realized that later on that this is part of what formed my interest in 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 the cold. So there we go. The snowman. You wanted to figure out how the snowman is able to fly. Um, this was. Back then, uh, the, the the sequence with the flying snowman and the boy was was a pretty groundbreaking when it comes to an, uh, when it comes to animation, like full animation, three D type of stuff and so on. Yeah. So, it really. And then you realize that uh, there are winds that are very strong. Like now, for example, out of Newfoundland, uh, right. there are uh, there is a storm. There are 62, 65 knots <laughs> out there, so, and the snowman actually can fly there. So it it, yeah, it it ticked all my boxes, and if you want to uh, uh, watch it, then again, it's twenty seven minutes long. It's on YouTube. We'll put a link in the show notes. But now, gets let's go to the serious kind of Be, books. But before we do, I would really love to uh, give a little shout out to um, one of our uh, listeners, uh, Robert Spagliari, um, who actually triggered that episode because he wrote an email months ago. And we've been in, in contact on that, um, where he just said he would love to hear or get some some uh, recommendations on polar books, and if we couldn't make an episode on that. And he recommended a book um, to me, which I actually read at this very moment, unfortunately, not in a physical uh, way, because shipping them here costs a fortune, so I try to buy them when I'm traveling. Um, but on an ebook reader, that's also uh, very nice. And the book is called uh, Floating Coast. Um, and it's a it's a book um, about the environmental history of the Bering Strait. And um, having traveled in the area, it's a very interesting area. And this book is, as he said, um, one of the reasons why he turns more and more into an environmentalist and uh, really being interested in environmental topics. Um, the perspective is the a foreigner's perspective into the native communities that actually form the Bering Strait, um, overarching from the Alaskan side and the uh, the Russian side, and all the three different um, native nations of Chukchi, of Yupik, and Inupiat. And it's a very interesting, very nice uh, book. I just started reading it, but that for for me was really like the the reason why I wanted to push the topic. And I actually also want to start to actually um, build the bridge to uh, Chris's book. Um, I browsed a bookstore in, in, in Bucharest in, in Romania. It's the capital of uh, Romania, which doesn't look very nice to me. It's a lot of concrete. But I had a very nice uh, and well-organized bookstore, and I couldn't go past the <laughs> naughty the, penguin. The naughty <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's really amazing. It's three little penguins. It's actually just six pages or eight pages or something like that. And those um, lordy, uh, naughty little penguins, uh, three of them, they just waddle around and, um, yeah, trick pretty much every little animal they find around, a leopard seal, um, an orca. Uh, it's it's really amazing, an albatross. <laughs> and eventually, um, the lesson learned is you should treat everyone nice because at one point you will uh, rely on them. So <laughs> I or thought be eaten. for... <laughs> or be eaten. <laughs> So All I right. For future future children, that's like a, a book I want to have. Perfect. So so uh, as we are about to go through six books, and in the interest of uh, using everyone's time wisely, I'm going to give each of you three minutes per book. Holy so crap! Tell us tell us what what it's the title, what it's about, and why you recommend people read it. Uh, Mario, how about you go first? Okay. I'm I'm going to be very naughty because I am giving you two books by you smuggled Tillman. One in. You smuggled one I in. smuggled one in. Now uh, Tillman is a uh, was a was a fantastic uh, fantastic person. I mean he uh, he was uh, a military person. He was uh, originally he bicycled through Africa on a diet mainly of bananas in a time where uh, probably wasn't uh, very wise to uh, to travel that much but uh, in the 70s he had a ship called Mischief a, a sailing boat uh, a Bristol cutter you can see it maybe here in the picture here and he made he was an alpinist and he went he organized it was a precursor of uh, going uh, for expeditions and he organized uh, the first ascents of a lot of uh, mountains in the North Atlantic mainly in Greenland and Spitsbergen so these books are 
One is called uh, Ice with Everything, and it's a fantastic story of an expedition to uh, to Greenland. And uh, Triumph and Tribulation is another one. They are not very thick, but they are you you read them in in one go. And it's uh, for expeditions in seventy four, seventy five, and seventy six to Svalbard, East Greenland, and West Greenland. If you're interested about sailing on an old ship, going mountaineering with the equipment that one had in the 70s, these are just amazing. Wonderful. Um, link, our links are going to be in the show notes. Henry, your yes. first book, please. My first book, I just finished um, two weeks back, I think. It's John Gertner's uh, The Ice at the End of the World, which is a pretty amazing book uh, for a number of reasons. But let me talk about John Gertner first. Um, he is a contributing author uh, or writer for the New York Times magazine. And he went on a trip for um, for a feature article to uh, to Greenland and was just part of uh, a program called Airbridge or Icebridge. And Icebridge was a very, very important NASA project, um, which actually um, created an elevation model for the Arctic, uh, for not only for the Arctic, also then uh, later for Antarctica. And John Gartner was so fascinated by that that he actually um, used that as an as a as a start to research 150 years of exploration history in Greenland. And he starts really with from the scratch from from the whalers going there. Um, he's covering all the big and the non so big um, expeditions and uh, explorers. And eventually ends up at the ice core drillings, uh, starting with the expedition of, um, uh, dang, now I'm missing, uh, Alfred Wegener, exactly, Alfred <laughs> Wegener in Ice Mitte. And hmm. uh, when we talked about um, the, the summit station and the rain uh, summit station last uh, in last episode, um, that's exactly the place where nowadays still the ice core drilling uh, is continued. And all of that is in here. Uh, it's written in a very, very nice way. It's a very entertaining way. He has a very uh, amazing style to write. So for me, it was very difficult to um, put that uh, book aside. John Gertner, The Ice at the End of the World, An Epic Journey into Greenland's Buried Past and Our Perilous Future. Really a recommendation. All right. So that's the all-encompassing history. It is. It's it's almost an, an encyclopedia. It's really, really awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Mario, you're next. Yeah, and I, I go back to books that might be difficult to find because these Tillman books, I wonder if they are still available, but uh, you find them in on antiquaries and eBay and things. But uh, another book that uh, has been fantastic for me because I worked in Northeast Greenland is by David Howarth and it's called The Sledge Patrol. Uh, he's this looks also well the author. read. This copy looks well read. Yeah. Very... This, uh, this copy was given to me by a, uh, a researcher uh, Mike Lee that was at the uh, uh, University uh, College in London and uh, he was uh, doing some recordings of sound recordings on narwhals in the 19, 1999 and, 19, and 2000 with his wife Kate, just the two of them on two Metzler uh, Zodiacs out there and uh, we shared a few meals together and the, he gave it to me it's a book that is uh, published in 57 so it's uh, uh, 1957, but it's a story of uh, uh, the wartime in East Greenland, the establishment of the Sirius patrol, Sirius like the star, that is uh, patrolling nowadays the sledge patrol out in north northeast Greenland, and uh, it is all the stories during the war uh, of the uh, German weather station being uh, positioned there and the local hunters, both uh, Norwegian and Danish, actually. Uh, trying to combat this and uh, what's happened uh, to to these uh, to these men, and it's uh, the subtitle is a true story of the strangest battlefront of all because it was a very interesting uh, episode in World War Two. By the way, David Howarth is also the author or of We Die Alone, <laughs> and uh, it's also a uh, film nice now, title. and uh, it's uh, about uh, uh, an episode here just north of Tromsø during the war. Of survival during the war of a of a Norwegian military person that was shot by the German invaders here and uh, managed to escape in a fantastic way. But uh, the Sledge Patrol, David Howarth. Perfect, Henry. 
I am heading down to the south and I would like to recommend Nick Protozzi's graphic novel Shackleton at Arctic Odyssey. Um, the story of Shackleton is very famous, is very popular. It's um, probably one of the most documented um, stories simply because it was a, a very positive outcome. He was really um, the boss. And Nick Protozzi, um chose a different approach, a different way, and just created a graphic novel to reach a different audience, uh, to, to reach people who not so much would read um, biographies or um, factual books, but would more or less dig into um, comics, uh, graphic novels. And I stumbled across that book in Ljubljana, in Slovenia, not long ago, and um, I couldn't resist to to buy it simply because of the connection to an Arctic history. And I really enjoyed uh, the way it's black and white, but that doesn't uh, take a lot of it. It really focuses more on the story. And um, I really, really enjoy that and admire it. It's a very nice way to retell the story of uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton, Nick Bertozzi, Shackleton, Antarctic Odyssey. Really amazing. That looks like a cool format. It is, yeah, and it and it, will, uh, and it will certainly thank will, you. Will, will certainly reach uh, audiences that wouldn't read a big fat book. Yeah, it's cool. it's really nice. It has beautiful maps in there as well, um, explaining where Antarctica is. And uh, can you see that? There you go. Um, so there, are, there is uh, really quite some some add on to it. It's not just uh, another comic book. It really a, a it's a um, a true story. And B, it adds quite some educational elements into that without being the teacher, right? Also, like uh, a map of Elephant Island where they actually landed. Awesome. Cool. Wow. Okay. Last book, third one is The Charm, Mario. <laughs> yes. And this time it's only, uh, it's only one book. It's, uh, I'm going in a totally <laughs> different way than Henry. So it's really good because I'm going west. And I'm going west. We started Svalbard, Greenland, and now we have for one last time, I will go the Northwest Passage. Awesome. Yeah. Pierre Berton, the, the Arctic Grail. Uh, you can find this. Uh, this I found also on, uh, on uh, eBay. Uh, it's the most uh, complete Endoro book about the Northwest Passage up to, uh, well, the, well, here it says 1909. So, so we are talking about uh, the first expeditions, both the, it's, it's a quest for the Northwest Passage. There's also the land expeditions by Franklin and the, uh, like all of the, the exploration on the area. So it doesn't include the, the latest development of finding the Erebus and the Terror, of course. This is an old book, but if you want, if you're passionate about the Northwest Passage, this is the one book that will tell you about the all the different rescue attempts, especially <laughs> to, and, to uh, find the Northwest Passage. But also the expeditions, the Kane expedition up in uh, Northwest Greenland, uh, and uh, and the like everything that is to do with going west. Uh, and it's and it's there. it's it's also closely related. I mean, it's really um, the Davis Strait, the Baffin Bay, the Baffin Island, all the the explorations that included not only the the official expeditions but a lot of whaler history. Really, really amazing. It's a great book. So, uh, yeah, do sure. me a favor and show this from the side just to get an idea how heavy. Oh yeah, this is a <laughs> this is a book book. This is a proper. I mean, this book. is this is a book that you not a book with as my as my, uh, as my grandmother would say. I mean, if you. If you have a, a hardcover that is uh, almost 700 pages, you don't want to read it in bed because it falls down <laughs> on your nose. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay. And last but not least, Henry, take us out of here with your third suggestion. And we stay in the Arctic, which is actually not really true, but it's the home of my um, next choice, which is one of my most favorite authors of all time, Andrei Snyder Magnusson. Um, I had the the luck to sit down with Andre um, two times to interview him on on different topics, but he wrote an amazing book about um, Iceland and why uh, Iceland has lost a little bit um, their connection to nature. And he just um, wrote so many different things. He started as a poet, um, writing um, poetry that was sold in 
um, in Bonos, which is like the the, the cheapest um, supermarket chain in Iceland. Um, uh, yeah, Bonos Poetry uh, was that um, called. Um, he later on um, wrote children's books. Um, he he wrote novels, and he came back last year with a book, Octima and Vatnith on time and water, um, which is really a beautiful book. Not only uh, from from the cover, um, but he tackles the topic of climate change in a way that I find very very um, amazing and astonishing, because he takes it on a personal voyage. He paints the picture of um, his grandma and his daughter and just builds the arc of his grandma, which is the great-grandma of uh, uh, his daughter, and her do uh, his daughter, and just shows how many uh, years those lifespans actually um, entail. And when we talk about how the planet looks like in 100 years, it sounds uh, a very distant future, But in fact, it's not. And he really visualizes that with stories of how his grandparents and his parents explored Iceland and how much the landscape changed in that time. And he really um, creates an understanding for how close related the change has been in the past, let's say, 100, 150 years. Really a great, great read. Um, that was almost... Uh, in, in, in one sitting. Um, and we put a link in the show notes of an interview with um, the, uh, the Emergence podcast or Emergence magazine podcast um, that has an interview with him um, almost an hour on that subject, on that matter. He is like really my most favorite author of all times. He really manages to cover so many different topics in a way that's really fun to read and to pick the book up over and over again. Andres Naya Magnusson on Time and Water. And it's available in I don't know how many languages. I think it's already 17 languages. Oops. All right. Great. Okay. Thank you, both of you, for digging into your large bookshelves. I know. I just want to show you one book. What? When you oh. talk about well-read well books. <laughs> Last Antarctic season, before COVID actually um, crashed everything down, I was uh, very, very pleased by uh, sharing a cabin with David Toffler, uh, which is an Australian um, kayak guide. And he was reading a book and I was just thinking, mate, this book looks so, so gross. What happened to that? Oh, I got that from a colleague and he took it into the sauna. And after he finished, <laughs> after he finished it, he just passed it on to me and I finished it. And now it's in my bookshelf. It's like the biography of Roald Amundsen, really nice, uh, The Last Viking. But I just wanted to show it because of it's how it looks like. It's a traveling book. <laughs> it's, it's, a it's a treasure because it really paints a picture of his character. But yeah. um, the book is just... Oh my God, it's it's apart. <laughs> anyway, it has character. Let's say it has character. This brings us to the end of this episode. If anyone out there wants to... Uh, see more books. I know there is plenty more where those came from. Um, you guys must have like walls of walls of books. So I'm, uh, yeah, the stacks come out. Okay. <laughs> so um, yeah, that that would be my suggestion. Everyone, make sure to um, to uh, give give us your feedback online and of course in the on YouTube. And that was it. Until next time, everyone. Take care. Bye.